You're listening to the Ukramedia podcast, episode number 88. Here we go. Hey, Ukramedia family, Vladimir Praknevsky here, and welcome to episode number 88 of the Ukramedia podcast, where I serve a Ukramedia family with interviews from highly creative people. And today's guest is Michael Pfeiffer. Mike is a veteran director, producer, and screenwriter. He has directed a little over 60 feature films, and he's produced well over 100 feature films. But not only that, check this out. He also directed several big stars such as Val Kilmer, Brittany Murphy, Tom Arnold, Minnie Rogers, Tom Skerritt, Jenny Garth, Peter Bogdanovich, Dean Kane, and so many more. And in this episode, you'll hear all about Mike's creative journey. And let me tell you, it's a very interesting one because Mike grew up in a show business family. His father was head of television research for 20th Century Fox in the late 60s and 70s. And you would think that Mike would go straight into movie business considering his father was already well-rooted in the industry, but that's not the case. Instead, Mike earned a degree in architecture from the University of Colorado at Boulder, and after graduating from college, he worked as a furniture and graphic designer before his successful filmmaking career. Just interesting stuff. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Pfeiffer. Enjoy. My first question for you would be is, uh, share something interesting about yourself that most people don't know. Love to hear what that would be. That most people don't know? Put you on the spot here, Michael. Well, most people know that I work a lot, and I love what I do. And uh, How many uh, hours do you usually work a week? Well, I try to sleep. I sleep probably five and a half, six hours a day, and I'm pretty much working the entire other time. When I go on vacations, I work. You know, my wife will go to sleep at nine or 10 o'clock at night, and I pull out the computer and I write scripts and I work and I'm producing movies. I mean, in the last 12 months, I've directed and produced eight movies. Wow. So I have something like four movies in post. I literally just finished a movie the day before yesterday. I start another movie next week. So, you know, my life is really my wife, my 17-year-old son, and making movies. You know, I think everything else out there is out in the open. Um, I think, uh, you know, some things interesting about probably, uh, I think people know, but, uh, you know, my father worked for 20th Century Fox in New York when I was born, and I was actually in the Variety and Hollywood Reporter when I was born, actually. And uh, I have copies <laughs> of that. And uh, I they saw that. Us, That's really cool. Yeah. They moved us out in 1972. And then I went to Roscommon Road Elementary School in kind of what we call Bel Air, Bel Air in Los Angeles. And um, that school had all these celebrities, kids. It was crazy. And um, my brother was best friends with J.J. Abrams. And uh, I don't know if your listeners know who Ed Asner is, but uh, Ed Asner was a huge television star. His kids went to school there. The Richards girls who were on the Beverly Hills Housewives show went to school there. O.J. Simpson's kids went to school there. <laughs> Peter Goober, who ran Sony and Mandalay Pictures, his his daughter was in my class. I mean, that was a when you look back at it, that was a crazy Hollywood public elementary school, you know, because in LA, in Los Angeles now, everybody, you know, kids generally go to private yeah. school. They don't really go to public school. But when my parents divorced, uh, uh, when I was in third grade, we moved, and um, I, I always say that was the worst career move of my <laughs> life. You know, was to leave Roscoe Road Elementary School. I didn't know I wanted to make movies, but. Uh, <laughs> So no, it is anyway. interesting because you do come from a family of uh, you know your father worked in in the film industry and stuff, but you kind of took a turn and you decided to go to uh, Colorado right for school and uh, you you were majoring in architecture right out of all things. Yeah, well, so in in um, about seventh grade, my father bought me a Yashica FR thirty five millimeter camera, and I started taking pictures and I really enjoyed photography. And my brother and I were always drawing, always sculpt. I sculpted a lot, actually. I always had plasticine clay 
and I was always sculpting. I was really good at sculpting heads, and I would I would sculpt all these different heads and put them on these, uh, and I, you know, from gorillas to people to werewolves to whatever. And and I was always sculpting. I was always drawing. My brother and I would have drawing competitions as kids. <laughs> he was. Uh, I was very extroverted and always out running around and playing sports and he was very introverted, but he would stay in the house and draw all day long and amazing drawings. And I, and, 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 you know, I would kind of follow in his footsteps and he went off to school to Berkeley for architecture. Neither of us had any interest in making movies. Uh, my father worked as director of television research at Fox. He worked for Carol Burnett and he didn't start making low budget movies until I was in high school. And, and, and I was sort of busy with my life, but I went to visit my brother at Berkeley and I saw he was doing an architecture school. And I'm like, Oh my God, this makes complete sense. This is what I should be doing. It's, it's sculpting, it's drawing, it's building models, it's photography, it's all these things all together. So I decided that I would do architecture also and follow my brother's footsteps. And, um, my mother took me to a college counselor cause my grades and my SAT weren't very good. And <laughs> I go to the college counselor and, and she says, well, you can't really pick a school you want to go to. Why don't you pick an area of the country that you like? So she throws down this brochure for uh, University of Colorado Boulder. And I don't know if your listeners have ever seen Boulder or been to Boulder, but it is one of the most epic places in the world. It is absolutely gorgeous. It's the, it's the quintessential college town buried beneath the Rocky Mountains with these, these mountains that jet out called, the, called the, uh, the Flatirons, which are these rock outcroppings. And the school is just beautiful. And so I saw that. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go there. And I got in and I went. I never visited or anything. I just went to school there. And I went to school for, for uh, it was actually, it wasn't even an accredited architecture school. Our, our, my degree is actually environmental design, but it is really oh, wow. architecture. And the intention was to get my master's in architecture. And uh, my brother went to Harvard for architecture. From, he got his master's from Harvard. So oh, wow. my intention was to go to, to, go to a, a school, get my master's degree. And... Uh, after graduating Colorado, I worked for that design firm for a year. And after a year, my father was making a movie called Fraternity Demon. And um, my brother was in between Berkeley and Harvard, or I don't know, but both of us decided we're going to go work on dad's movie and go see what it's like to be a production assistant. And um, man, I, it, the movie was a complete disaster. My brother ended up being the AD. I ended up sort of being the coordinator and we sort of ended up being the glue to hold it together. My brother went back off to school and I just continued working for my father. And so Fraternity Demon was the film that sort of sucked me into the business, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> now, why was it a disaster? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, low budget movies, uh, if you don't have um, a strong producing team, people who really care about the project, people who are fiscally responsible, uh, things can really fall apart quick. Uh, mm. So... You know, that film, uh, you know, you just had, you know, some producers who were, you know, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything bad about them, but, you know, I think they had, and I don't know what was going on with them, but they had other things going on and, and it, meaning that they weren't even around and the production was sort of running on its own, which was not running well. And it was a low, 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 low budget movie. I mean, ridiculously low budget, but uh, it got made and, you know, back then it was uh, VHS filler material. You know, my dad made a lot of movies that were sort of, uh, uh, I, I, you know, back in the day of, of blockbuster videos and mom and pop video stores, they needed product in the stores and, um, that's where the videos would go. In fact, back then, um, I, I, a lot of your listeners might be too young for this, but a VHS cassette in a store actually had a retail of $89, $99. So if you rented a video cassette from a store and you lost it, you would owe them a hundred dollars. <laughs> um, 
And what it means is that the stores were buying the video cassettes for a wholesale price of say $30. So we were selling movies for $30 a piece. And, um, you could, you could, uh, you could make a lot of money, uh, with all the video stores in the country selling movies at $30 a piece and video stores, if they're buying two, three, four, five copies, that was a lot of money. And my dad, I don't know if, if you, if you saw in my background, but my, my dad had a series of movies called witchcraft. And I saw that. Uh, he does have witchcraft. a lot of those. Yeah. So you, you're, yes, you produce them yeah. as well. I produced witchcraft five, six, seven, eight, nine. And, uh, my, uh, my first movie I produced, I was 24, I think was witchcraft five, but those movies sold thousands and thousands and thousands of cassettes in every video store in the country. And, uh, that's what kept my father afloat and doing well back in the, back in the day. And what was your, so you started working for your father. What was your next step? How did you get to where you are today? Well, so what happened was, um, I was working for my father producing, producing his films and, uh, and it was all trial by fire. I mean, it's like I was there and he knew I, he could trust me. And so, and I, I dove in and said, I'm going to start producing your movies because, uh, I'm the only one you can trust. And then I was helping to run his video label. I was going with him to the foreign markets to sell movies. We'd go to, uh, the American film market in Santa Monica, uh, uh fed, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was in Milan can, the can a lot of people don't realize, but the Cannes Film Festival also has uh, the film festival is really, I think, a smaller part of the film market. The uh, the Cannes du Marché, which is the actual film market of buying and selling films, uh, sort of smaller distribution, independent label selling films, and um, you know we'd go to these markets and sell films. But I would meet other companies and become friends with other companies that were making movies, and and another company. Uh, owned by two guys named Rich Goldberg and uh, Mark Greenberg, uh, asked me if I would produce movies for them, uh, if I would, you know, leave my father and produce something, not, not leave them, but produce other things for them. So I started producing movies for them. And I was, you know, when I say producing movies too, I'm not sure if a lot of people know, but there's really three types of producers. There's executive producers who, who finance the movie. There's producers who sort of, you know, bring a writer and money together and a director together. And they sort of put all the pieces together. And then there's the line producer sort of fabricates the entire movie. I was always more on the line producing side. When I produce movies, I'm sort of like when you, uh, when you buy a house, I'm the contractor that'll build the entire house for you. So, you know, this other company um, uh, asked me to start producing movies for them. And, and, and I was producing movies. And then I also started ADing the movies I was producing for two reasons. One is I can control the pace of, of how we shot and got everything done in the day. And also I started honing my skills as a director because I started realizing that the directors that I was producing movies for did not have a visual eye, did not have a creative eye, didn't understand composition and color and perspective. They didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't see the world, I thought, the way I saw it. And probably a lot of your listeners uh, uh, see it, which is, which is actually directing is, is, really, um, is, is really a visual, like it's just like a – a crazy corticopia of like visual dynamics going on at all times. And uh, I find that, that, and, and uh, what, what happened was somebody, somebody asked me to produce a movie for them and then their director dropped out and he asked me to direct a movie and I had produced 30 movies and I AD'd about 12 movies and, um, and I got a chance to direct my first film. And after the first shot of the first movie, I called my father up and I said, I said, dad, architecture school wasn't a waste of time. This all makes <laughs> sense. I, I, Direct the, I think the best education for directing is actually something like architecture school, you know, something that's a visual medium. How um, so? In, in what sense? School. What's in, that? One, in one sense, like how, how did that help you? How did it help you? 
directing movies is is like as you know as a visual medium what what happens is that a lot of directors that don't understand visuals and don't understand perspective and color and composition and lighting and lenses and camera movement they get caught up in the acting and they want to hang with the actors they want to direct their actors but actors are very very they really know their stuff you don't really have to direct actors too much uh, you have a conversation with them ahead of time. You get on the same page. And directors, I mean, I'm sorry, actors don't really want to be directed by a director. They want to have the freedom to do their thing. So I always say it's not my job to tell an actor how to act. It's my job to tell them where to go. It's my job to direct the crew. A director really needs to direct their crew to get everything because it's it's really a misnomer. A lot of people think, you know, directors are just working with their actors. But directors, it actually drives me crazy like um, – I'll give you an example of the movie The Reverend. Uh, the movie The Reverend won Best Cinematography. From what I understand, that movie was not lit. It was all it was all lit by natural light. It was all shot at sunset. It was all so. Whose lens choices were those? Whose camera moves were those? You know, uh, they were not the DPs. They were the directors. You know, yet the DP wins uh, wins Best Cinematography. My point is that is that when you're a director, you really have to see the entire world, the entire vision, and actually the one part of your crew that's probably the most experienced and you can really set free, and they like to be set free, are the actors, actually. But you have to make the choices on lenses. You have to make the choice on where you're going to place that camera, what position you're going to place those cameras in, uh, how you're going to move the camera, how you're going to get in of a scene and out of a scene. And it really, really harkens back to understanding visuals and and for me it really harkens back to architecture school architectural school and and even my photography back in seventh grade and my photography classes in high school where we're really at the end of the day all that matters is what's in that rectangle whether you're shooting 16 by 9 or 235 or whatever and at the end of the day it's what matters is is in that rectangle and you have to really uh understand how to get the most depth out of that rectangle how to get the most composition how to how to combine color and and setting up shots is very architectural. Even if you have, if you have, for instance, a bunch of people in the desert, you have no buildings, no architecture whatsoever, but the people themselves become a column in the desert, you know, Interesting. and how you arrange them. Are you, are you pointing the camera at them in a, in a sort of one point perspective or in a two point perspective? You know, are you shooting them from above and sort of more of a plan, you know? So that's sort of how I, I, that's part of how I see directing. You know, it's interesting. And you directed several Huge stars. I mean, people like Val Kilmer, Brittany Murphy, Tom Arnold. I mean, the list goes on and on. Do you ever get starstruck? Is it something that you're over, or is it, what was your first time working with somebody huge? Were you starstruck? You know, I do not get starstruck uh, because uh, when you when you make movies and you and you work behind the scenes, you recognize that the people who really are the hard workers on movie sets are the ones behind the scenes. And, and it's, and you sort of lose your, the glamor of Hollywood because you, you know, you just see how actors are and you see they're normal people or they're people with troubles and, and, um, and they all have their idiosyncrasies and things. You sort of lose that starstruckness. Um, um, I maybe probably maybe the first time I ever got starstruck on the first movie I directed where I was a little nervous, actually, to tell you the truth was Judd Nelson. Judd Nelson from The Breakfast Club, right? Judd Nelson from tons of movies in the 80s and uh, uh, TV series with Brooke Shields back in the 80s or 90s. And and because um, the first movie I directed had actually um, Michael Learned from The Waltons, James Avery from uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Stacey Dash from Clueless, and Jennifer Carpenter, uh, who went on to star in The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Dexter. Oh, she has a TV yeah. series on right now. And it was actually only like her second movie. But she wasn't... Uh, she, this is the beginning for her. But Judd Nelson, though, 
I had a meeting with Judd Nelson in West Hollywood, right? So for the first time, you know, hired him. He, he wanted to get together for lunch and meet. And I was late for the meeting because uh, your listeners probably know that LA has horrendous traffic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you could plan all you want. And sometimes you just don't make it to meetings on time. And, and that's true. Uh, I mean, sometimes I, 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 if I have, I live in the valley, and if I have to go over the hill, I, I swear sometimes I, I want to rent a hotel and just stay there overnight. <laughs> I know in the morning it's going to be terrible. But uh, I had a meeting with Judd Nelson. I was late. I was like, oh my God, I called my wife. I'm meeting with Judd Nelson from The Breakfast. I mean, I grew up in the 80s. Like, The Breakfast Club is like everything <laughs> to me, you know, and those, those John Hughes movies. And I get there, and he's not there. And he's late oh. and I'm sitting there at this restaurant on a sidewalk on Melrose Avenue outside. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I just rushed. I just, I, I could have gotten 10 tickets getting there, you know, John <laughs> Nelson. And, um, I was wearing a sweatshirt that said Brooklyn across it. And I'm sitting there on the sidewalk and on Melrose Avenue. And I suddenly hear, Yo, Brooklyn! And I turn to the left and I look, and there's Judd Nelson in this Jeep Cherokee with the top off, with his hair all crazy and sunglasses. He's like, "Yo, Brooklyn, I'll be there in a moment," you know. And he races off and parks his car and shows up, and and uh, and we have our first meet. So that was the first movie I directed with the first star for me. After at base, and then and then you know the conversation was was very harried and and crazy and very much what you'd expect from Judd Nelson. <laughs> and um, and I think after that, my starstruckness went away very quickly, you know. <laughs> so um, I, I would say I, I really enjoyed working with uh, it was only a couple of days by Peter Bogdanovich because Peter Bogdanovich uh, is a legend and um, and the nicest guy in the world to work with. And uh, I even said to him, I said, why are you working on my movie? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, I'm I'm. I'm staying at Quentin's house, Quentin Tarantino's house, and um, I got nothing going on. And my agent called me, and I, th- I thought I'd just, you know, I'd work a couple days on a movie. And um, and he's the kind of man who who you don't uh, you don't tell him stories because he has so many stories. You just let him go, and he'll just start <laughs> nice. telling you Hollywood stories, you know. So um, you know, I would say when I worked with Val Kilmer on on Wide Earth's Revenge, that was one day, and um, I, I thought I'd be starstruck. But the funny thing about that was. I didn't actually meet him. And I called him on the, when, when I found out that we got him, I called him on the phone to work out where we were going to shoot. Uh, he told me he was going to be in San Francisco. So we decided to shoot his entire day of shooting as an older Wyatt Earp in San Francisco. I've got the Fairmont hotel to let me shoot there, which really decoration wise, it's, it's decorated to look pretty much like it was after the big fire and earthquake in San Francisco. So it was a perfect location. And, um, and I only talked to Val on the phone once. Then I talked to his assistant. I talked to his makeup artist. And and when I was in San Francisco, we actually started filming in the lobby of the hotel at something like five in the morning. And, and Val's call time wasn't until like eight o'clock in the morning. So I was busy shooting. I hadn't even met him in person. And finally, when it was time for him to come to set or actually was to, was to a hotel room, he showed up completely dressed as Wyatt Earp. And he had this hat on and he had this massive mustache. And um, it didn't look like Val Kilmer, <laughs> you know, Val Kilmer is very recognizable by his mouth. And here he's wearing this mustache, he's covering his mouth. And it was the funniest thing. Like, I, I, <laughs> I, I felt like I was working with an older wide earth, not with, you know, uh, the legend of Val Kilmer. And, and all day long, I mean, we shot actually 12 pages of the movie in one day. And he Jeez. was amazing, actually. And at the end of the day, when I said, OK, it's a wrap for Val Kilmer. He takes off his, he pulls off his mustache and there he was, you know, I, I, I swear, I, I, 
all day long, I'm questioning myself. I'm going, is this really Val Kilmer? Like, is he in there? And, uh, and he pulls off the mustache and there he is, you know, so <laughs> that's the proof. But, uh, you know, I, I think for people directing actors not to get starstruck is just recognize that they're just real people and, uh, they're, they've got their own insecurities and everything too. And, uh, and they just want, they just want to have a relationship with their director and feel, feel wanted. And, and they want to feel like they can just be free to, to act and be themselves and really explore the characters. And then you, and then you can really start off in a good relationship with them. You know, and I was looking through your resume, which is, by the way, like I said earlier, it's very impressive. You've directed so many. What is it? You're on your 97th film. You produced a total of like 97 films. It's actually, I think, I think it's over 100. I just directed my 60th movie. Oh my goodness! Wow. So, yeah. at what point do you do you think you're gonna stop it all? Or you're just gonna like what? What are you? Which number are you trying to to reach to? Well, no. I mean, why would I stop? Right? Uh, it's just what I do. It's what I live for now. Um, um, it's how I make a living. It's how I take care of my family. In fact, I started another movie um, the Monday after this Monday, and I just finished a movie two days ago. I mean, as long as people are going to hire me and, and ask me to make movies, I'm going to keep making movies. I mean, if, <laughs> if I was um, you know manufacturing cardboard boxes, I'm not going to stop making boxes. I'm you know if people are asking me to make boxes, I'll make boxes. I mean, <laughs> no, that's true. But how do you how do you unplug from it all? Like for example, like so you're a father and. You, you said you work a lot of hours. Like, do you? Would you say that when you lay down, you know, go to sleep, do you dream about movies? Like, do you have a, a, yes. a way of unplugging it all, or you just you don't even want to unplug um, because you love it so much? I don't. I don't really want to unplug. It's my life. It's what I do. Uh, the problem with dreaming about movies is I dream. Of, I have production dreams, which is really kind of upsetting. Like, interesting. I'd rather have like dreams of my wife and I running on the beach and falling over in the water and then and then the director yells cut or something you know and we're in the tropics but no my dreams are like you know we're we're on set and the and the grip and light truck hasn't shown up you know or you know they're, like, they're more stressful dreams to like tell you nightmares truth. yeah well they're yeah I don't know they're 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 very busy dreams of production because production you know the heart of making movies is is actual production the physical production of making a movie I mean from permits to crew to payroll to accounting to rentals to L and D, which means for loss and damage. I mean, to neighbors who want to shut you down. I mean, really, there's this there's this um, fantasy about making movies, and then you're on set, and the reality hits you. You know, when the rain comes, and and then. Um, you know, I was shooting a movie in downtown LA at this restaurant, and we point towards the window. And the moment I point out the window, a homeless guy on a bus bench has some episode, and three fire trucks and an ambulance show up right outside the window. <laughs> oh, and I'm like, really? I mean, come on. And um, my, uh, one of my production assistants actually went out and got the firemen to move their trucks literally like two doors over so they wouldn't be in our shot, you know? But, uh, <laughs> but really, the heart of making movies is production. Uh, people don't, you know, it's, it's made to look glossy. It's made to look sometimes beautiful or whatever it might be. And, and again, it's what's in that rectangle, but outside that rectangle is really where the work comes in. You know, that's really the, the, and what a lot of people don't understand, you know, a lot of people want to direct movies and they see movies in theaters and they don't really recognize really all of the time and effort that goes into production and uh, what's involved with, um, with just, just even acquiring a location, for instance, you know, or... How long does it take you to produce a movie from start to... Let's say you're writing, directing, producing yourself. How long... What's the time frame for, for uh, until finish line? Well, it, it, it doesn't take me very long. So let's, let's also backtrack about what I do, the kind of, the kind of movies that I make 
you know, that I make a living doing are movies that are a lot of times television movies. They're a product. I love making my movies, but at the same time, you can't, uh, you can't fall in love while making them because you got to get done on time every day. You can't go overtime. There's no money for OT, you know? So, you know, what I look at the way I make my movies is if I went to car design school and I graduated, I'd want to go design Ferraris and uh, Porsches and things and Lamborghinis. But, you know, in reality, I might get a job designing Hondas, but I'm going to make the best damn Honda I can, you know, <laughs> and that Honda is going to sell better and be watched more or, or sell better and be driven more than a Ferrari or Lamborghini. And, and I'll see it on the streets everywhere and I'll be proud of it. You know, that's how I see a lot of making the movies that I make, I get hired to make. I mean, sure, I'd like to, to make that Ferrari of a movie, but right now I'm so busy making those Honda movies that are uh, Toyota movies. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm okay with that. But um, I forgot your question. <laughs> oh, no. I'm curious because uh, curious to hear your take on this because the industry is kind of taking a shift a little bit. What do you take of like the YouTubers, people that make vlogs or like try to tell stories with their cameras on low production? Like, do you think eventually people will gravitate towards that or do you think movies are always going to be a thing? Well, you know, I, I think it's an interesting question. I think that movies, uh, um, theaters will always be there. Because there, there's just something special about going to movie theaters and, and movie theater and enjoying it with multiple people and seeing it as big as possible and the best sound. And no matter how good your system is at home, you still can't duplicate what you can get in movie theater. Right. And now with, you know, I don't know how it is, you know, for all your viewers, but in Los Angeles now, every theater has lounge chairs and um, uh, assigned seating, uh, which is great. You know, I mean, my son, uh, you know, I, I think he remembers, but, you know, the, the whole concept of the idea of blockbuster you know, was the idea that you go to the movies, like go see Jaws or Star Wars or E.T. or whatever, and, and you'd have to stand in line and wait. And if you wanted to get a good seat, you'd have to be in the front. And uh, and the line would go all the way around the block. That was because there wasn't the signed seating. You couldn't get on the Internet and just, you know, buy your seat earlier. You know, I mean, look at when a Star Wars movie comes out. Everybody's getting their seats six months early. So I, I think that movie theaters will always exist. But uh, there will always be other mediums to watch movies and tv shows and things like what's happening now i mean it's funny if you look at the way uh my dad's uh history of making movies you know he started off making movies in the day of vhs then vhs disappeared and went to dvd then dvd started disappearing and it started going to streaming and then you know and it and it's progressed and uh you know who knows what's gonna be next but the whole idea of storytelling and content is always going to be there and i think the format of movies i mean you probably see a virtual virtual reality isn't really coming about the way people had hoped. I mean, I, I don't think people want to put on headsets and watch an entire movie with a headset on. They want to kind of lean back in the in the dark room and watch a movie. I mean, it, it works. It works. So um, I, I think that. It, but but story. So like you know your your listeners. Um, I think it's really important to really it's really important to understand the language of film and how to tell a story using the language of film. It's it's critical, and and the language of film is is understanding close ups and medium shots and over the shoulder shots and tracking shots and dolly push ins and pull outs and digital pushes and digital pull outs and uh, how to how to you know if you're shooting something that's a thriller just lower your camera just a bit so that your angle is up and it just has adds a certain intensity or when to shoot handheld and when to shoot on sticks you know all of these the visual language applying to the storytelling. And, and to make the best story possible. You know, a lot of times what happens if a, if a YouTuber or something's making a, uh, a film or a short film or something, a lot of times people don't understand uh, the, the language of, of film and, and how best to tell that story. And so they're missing out. You know, um, 
I'll use an example that I like to use when I explain to people why I, you know, a lot of times when you direct movies, mostly as much as I do, you have a lot of people who ask questions. A lot of people want to come sit next to me on set and watch what I do and learn what I do. And, um, and I like teaching people what I do, but, um, for instance, I like to use an example of uh, camera placement that I call umpire versus audience. In a baseball game, the, the person with the best point of view of the baseball game is the umpire. The umpire is behind the catcher, watching the game, and is closest to the actual game, and is literally over the shoulder of the catcher. And when those pitches come in at 100 miles per hour, it feels like the, the pitch is hitting the umpire. The person with the worst point of view is the audience way, 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 way up high in the top of the stadium looking down on the on the game, right? So... But some points of views the audience might have where they're at the first baseline and they kind of see the whole game clearly and they can see from the catcher all the way to outfield. They kind of see the whole game or, you know, if they're at a hockey game or a basketball game, they're right center court. You can see the whole game, you know, but it's not dynamic the way an umpire's point of view is, for instance. So a lot of times you want to place the camera dependent on whether you want the umpire, the audience to feel like they're the umpire or the audience uh, or audience of a game. So for instance, when you're shooting um, coverage of a scene and two people are talking to each other, right? I really, really like to to get that camera as close to the line of action, which means as close behind an actor's head so that the actor talking to that actor, their eyes almost look like they're looking at my camera, which is my audience, but they're looking in the eyes of the actor that I'm behind, right? And um, that's an over-the-shoulder shot, but it's really like an over-the-ear shot what I call umpire, umpire's point of view. And it's really a powerful image. I mean, the best shot in a movie, I think, and the most valuable shot and the cheapest shot in the movie is a close-up because we go to the movies to see people. People, uh, uh, your eyes are, uh, you know, give us a sense of someone's soul, right? So the closer I can get to a close-up and people's eyes and close to that person talking to the other person. In fact, I'll even tell an actor, if my camera's on the right side of somebody's head, I'll tell the actor opposite the camera that we're shooting to act to that actor's right eye, because that way their eye line is even closer to the camera. Right. Hmm, um, and that is a really powerful shot in movies. But a lot of people, I watch movies and they have the camera just off angle a little bit, you know, or it's not dirty, meaning the shoulder's not in the shot or it's, it's off to the side and, and they're missing out on the power of, of that close up, you know? And, uh, and, and where they're placing the camera. So it's really important. Um, and that's something when I watch, you know, say somebody's short film they put on YouTube or something, I think that a lot of times people don't really understand the language of film and where to place that camera to get the most dramatic possibilities out of it and the power and the, the dynamism of, of, of a scene, you know? Now, I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. What types of things should let's say writers, directors, producers, people that want aspiring uh, writers, directors, producers, what types of things should be, uh, should those students be doing constantly, if not, you know, every single day to get better at their craft? Well, well, first of all, I have a lot of mantras about making movies that I, that I, you know, that I've developed through the years. Okay. One is when it comes to writing, I really try to tell everybody that asks me about writing is try to be very good, not perfect. Okay. Don't try to be perfect on the page. You have a word processor. You can copy and paste. You can move things around. And if you try to be perfect and you get writer's block, just, I literally say, throw up on the page and just start writing, you know? So a lot of writers, for instance, what they can do, I, I really think just dig in and start writing, but don't fall in love. 
don't be perfect. Don't be a perfectionist. Nobody has to see what you're doing. You're in your world. Nobody has to read your files and just start typing and writing and, and feeling how to sculpt that scene or that movie. And it's word processing. So you can copy and paste and move things around and eventually get it to what might be perfect. But a lot of people have problems because, you know, people tell me, oh, I've been working on a script for two years. Well, I write scripts in a week, you know, and the reason I do that is because I write, I type fast. Typing fast is a good thing. I, I suggest learning how to type fast because if you can type fast, you can type almost as fast as you're thinking. It's really critical, I think, actually, to be able to type as fast as you can think. Uh, the best class I took in high school actually was was typing class, to tell you the truth. And I learned how to type on a manual typewriter. But um, um, and then and then just just don't be a perfectionist. Just get the stuff on the page and write. The other thing is for writing and for writers is to understand that all movies are a formula. Don't think that you're different. Don't think that you're special. Don't think that you know better. You go back and you look at The Godfather and Star Wars and um, the Marvel movies. They're all the same formula that that is the writer's journey of i think a great uh, a great book is by a, a guy named christopher vogler the writer's journey uh that diagrams out uh movies and you'll see pretty much every movie is your your protagonist lives in an ordinary world and something happens that takes them out of the ordinary world and brings them the extraordinary world if you stick to that structure you're going to be you're going to be golden you'll 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 you know and and, and so don't don't try to be so much different when it comes to structure because people actually don't want to go to the movies and see something vastly different. They really actually want to see the hero win at the end of the day. I mean, you might have a story that's different, but I'm just saying in general terms, you know, and if you take Star Wars, for instance, Luke Skywalker is on, on the desert planet, his aunt and uncle are killed and, and now he's off in the extraordinary world. And along the way, he meets Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is the sage, you know, I mean, there's certain story conventions that you need to have in your story. So if you think of that stuff, I also... I think for writers, it's really beneficial to get a program like Final Draft, which most writers use, because the moment you write EXT dot, it automatically knows you have all caps. EXT dot um, volcano, you know, space hyphen space uh, morning, you know, and you hit return and now you can write your action, you know, uh, an aerial shot, we fly over the volcano, you know, and and then you hit return, and you hit uh, EXT, it, it automatically, and you hit tab and it goes to your character. I mean, it automatically, you actually feel like you're writing a script and it, and it just helps with the process. You know, when it comes to actually fabricating films, I think that it's really critical to get on movie sets and work on movie sets. And I am not a big fan of film schools. Really? What? How come? Well, I'm going to be honest with you that all the film school students that come to me that work for me, know very little about making films. Um, they might have studied Sergei Eisenstein. They might have studied Fellini. They, but, you know, that's all great. You could do that on your own time. But actually understanding filmmaking, actually knowing what an F-stop is, what an HMI is, what a what a what the new LED lights that we use like crazy, an Apple box versus a C-stand. I mean, everything that – all these tools that we use to make movies, I find that the film school students come to my sets and they don't know any of it. And it's wow. shocking to tell you the truth. It's shocking. And the point is that you could you could come to LA, get on Craigslist, and find a job working on a movie set as a production assistant. And if you're a good production assistant, you you might go to the grips and ask them what they're doing and go to the electricians and ask what they're doing, go to the camera department and ask and then say, Hey, can I help out when I'm not, you know, being a production assistant? And before you know it, you find something you're interested in. And then you're focusing on that, but you're learning. The objective is to get on set and learn everything from what the makeup girls are doing 
you know, just because you're a guy doesn't mean you can't go in the makeup room and say, okay, why do you do this makeup or why do you do that? Or the, with the costume, you know, the costume designer has to break down the entire script. It's actually pretty fascinating what a costume designer does because they break down the entire script and they understand the continuity, probably the continuity best other than the script supervisor. Sit next to the script supervisor and understand what they're doing and, and really understand how a film is fabricated. And you learn that best on set. But what's even better is you can get paid. So you're getting paid to go to film school. We have a joke on my sets when a production system comes to set. We call it the Pfeiffer Film Academy for first-time filmmakers, and uh, um, and they really and I I actually push my production assistants. I'll take a production assistant and pull them over to the camera department and go, "You need to learn uh, the difference between a you know an an, an f sixteen f stop and a and a two point eight you know or what what's a four five five six split or whatever it might be you know." Why are, why are we using a, a, a 135 millimeter lens instead of a 35 millimeter lens, you know, things like that. And, and then I'll, I'll take a PA over to a grip and say, uh, you need to learn how to open and close a C-stand and what a gobo arm is and all, all these tools that we use, you know, what's the difference between a, a single and a double and a flag and a two by, you know, all these different things. Those are really critical to learn. And so I highly suggest people want to learn filmmaking to get on a film set and, you know, I don't ever hire people for free because by law they have to be paid. But I would offer to work for free because you're going to pay for film school. So you might as well offer to work for free. And they might ask. They, hopefully they'll pay you because by law, it's a California law, you have to pay people no matter what. But if I was a, a someone who, who could afford it and I wanted to learn filmmaking, I would get on a film set and, and plead with people to let me on the film set and do whatever I could to really learn how films are made. And um, so practicing that craft is important. No, that's great advice. Now, I'm, I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to ask you a question about something that I asked everyone on the show, and I'm curious what your answer will be. What is your worst moment in your creative journey, either on set or writing? I'm just curious what would it be, like something that totally completely went wrong, maybe a movie that tanked, and uh, how you dealt with it? <laughs> I, you know, some of the worst moments, actually, I, I'll tell you, you asked me about working with actors. Some of the worst moments on sets are famous actors who behave badly. Sometimes I'm just at my wits end. I mean, I've had, I've had a lead, a, a famous, an actress who was famous in the eighties show up on set on drugs. I've had a, a very famous actor come up on set where I'm pretty sure he was up all night partying and doing drugs and uh, wouldn't come out of his dressing room for a few hours. Um, I had um, another famous actress we weren't sure if she was going to actually show up on set. She wouldn't let us talk to her at all until uh, it was uh, until until her call time, the first day of shooting. My costumes on her even couldn't talk to her. Those are those are times that are a little disheartening because you believe in people and you have faith in them. And and then you know the thing about directing movies and and uh, and working with actors um, is is that uh, you know you something that people have to understand too about directing movies is you really have to be a politician. Um, you could hate the actor from day one and be working them with them for, you know, three straight weeks. And they can't know that they have to think you love them. Uh, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> that must be hard. It's, it's very difficult. Sometimes it's really difficult. And for me, I like my sets to be really enjoyable places. Everybody having a good time because the more enjoyable it is and free, the more creative I feel. It's hard to be creative when you're upset about something or some actors shown up late and they have no excuse for it or, or, um, I had an actress we shot in her hometown in um, not too far out of L.A. And um, we did that just for her. And uh, she still didn't want to show up on set. And she was still difficult. And um, wow. that was very upsetting. Uh, <laughs> I have had a, 
what's amazing in Los Angeles, because I shoot most of my movies in Los Angeles, is the weather is almost always good. And so only one time in my entire career have I actually had to shut down production during the middle of the day. And and it was, I was shooting in uh, Topanga Canyon in Los Angeles. I don't know if a lot of your listeners know, but there is a mountain range that runs right through Los Angeles. So we literally drive through canyons all the time. Uh, you know, if the 405 freeway is packed, you know, you take Beverly Glen or uh, Coldwater Canyon or uh, one of these other canyons, but Topanga Canyon takes you to the beach from the San Fernando Valley. But Topanga Canyon runs along a dry creek and a lot of the houses are down at creek level. And so I was shooting at a house that was um, right at the creek and that creek, I've never even seen water run through that creek. But the day I got there to shoot, it was a little drizzly and there was a little teeny line of water coming, you know, streaming down that creek. And, um, and we were shooting in a cabin right along, right along the creek. And uh, in the six hours from call time to lunch, the rain just continued falling. It was pouring. And that little dry creek turned into a 40 foot wide raging river uh, <laughs> with, with wow. trees going down. And I, it was crazy. And um, our parking lot started filling up with water. And so I had to make the decision to shut down and everybody wrap up and get out of there. Of course, the moment we all got out, the rain stopped. But uh, that's usually how it works. <laughs> yeah. But you got to take care of your crew. You know, at the end of the day, too, you know, you know, safety first. Important right? for people. Yeah. And when you're, when you're a director, you know, um, you really have to, and also a producer, and it's really critical uh, for anybody that takes on a movie to recognize that safety is really the number one thing. You really got to take care of people. A lot of times I'll be directing and I'll see a reflector board. Uh, you know, I think, uh, I think the actress Kristen Chenoweth, I think she got hit over the head by a, a reflector board and it almost wow. killed her. You might see a reflector board that doesn't have a sandbag or multiple sandbags on the stand. And I'll literally say action. Then I'll go, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, guys, there's no sandbags on that reflector board because you can't take a chance of that thing blowing mm -hmm. over and hitting somebody. I mean, the other, the other day we had a 10 by 10 tent fly away because people didn't put sandbags on and luckily didn't hit anybody. <laughs> but um, you really, you know, there's, you, you have to be safe and smart on set because you have people that you're taking care of and people are depending on you and, and you're out in, you know, you're out by a lake. I mean, the night before last, we threw a, a car in the water and then we filmed the girl in the water, in the car. And, um, wow. you know, I had a stunt coordinator there and a, a, a diver and a, a lifeguards and a fireman and everything. Cause I had to do that very, very safely. Cause I, I can't take a chance of hurting anybody and I can't take a chance of destroying my career, you know? So you have to make sure you take those precautions and be smart. Oh, definitely. Now let's shift gears again and talk about something positive. Let's talk, tell us the story of your best moment in your creative journey. My best moment. Well, well, probably the best moment. Well, a hundred percent. I'd say the best moment actually is, um, I, um, I finished making this strange little horror film called a crack in the floor. And there was an actor there. It was directed by two directors named uh, Corbin Timbrook and Sean Stanek. And, uh, and there was an actor named Bo Hopkins, who was an old time actor. And uh, after that movie, uh, this woman was um, starring in a short film opposite Corbin Timbrook and directed by Bo Hopkins. And the woman said that she wanted to produce and direct and star in a movie. And she was looking for a line producer. And both of them said, hey, well, why don't you call it Mike Pfeiffer? So I got a call from this woman and I was making a movie at the time. And I said, why don't you come to my set and come visit me and see how I work. And uh, she showed up on set and she was this gorgeous, statuesque, beautiful woman. And uh, that woman ended up hiring me to produce her movie for her. 
uh, we fell in love location scouting. We we decided that we could make a movie together. We can get married. So we got married in six months, and we're celebrating oh, wow. 18 years. Well, congratulations. Uh, so that, well, her wow. name is Kaya Coley. She's my wife. We had our son nine months after getting, you know, so – I would say the best moment of my career is honestly is, is that's how I met my wife. And, uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool. And, and making a movie together and her sister, uh, Tamara was one of the main financiers of the movie. And, and we all made this movie together and, and we have that movie, you know, uh, it's called choosing Matthias and you can look that up online and you can see this movie that, that was the beginning of our relationship. And it's pretty cool that my 17 year old son can look back at that movie and go, that's how my parents met. That's, that's where it that all is happened. cool. You know? Wow. Speaking yeah, about your yeah. son, is he following the same footsteps as you or is he taking a different career path? Well, he's funny because he, uh, well, first of all, at 14 years old, I had him on set being a production assistant. You know, he would always be on set. He's been in my movies before in small little roles. Uh, never really cared too much to be in front of the camera, but he's, he's got some, some, some movies where he talks and he's got some scenes, but, uh, at 14, he started, you know, working as a production assistant, you know, when he was available. And then I, I noticed after a couple of days as a PA, you know, he didn't really want to like, you know, get people's chairs <laughs> and fix the food and go, you know, go on runs for people. <laughs> and I said, you know something, why don't you start shooting? So, so I put him with the camera crew and he at, at 14, 15 years old, he was operating camera. He was operating B camera, pulling focus himself, changing lenses, changing map boxes, you know, changing filters and map boxes and setting up tripods and he was literally operating B camera and, and when he's available, you know, because, um, actually he has, he's been going to a school where he, he, they don't go to school on Fridays. So a lot of times he was able to come on Fridays and work. And then sometimes I'll work on weekends. And so he learned how to operate B camera. He's very good at operating B camera. He's also very good at operating a drone. By the way, I highly suggest everybody to buy drones. I mean, what a powerful tool that is. Yes. Uh, I love drones. I mean, I just bought the new DJI Mavic 2 Pro, which is you know fifteen hundred dollars for a one-inch chip and a Hasselblad camera on a drone. I mean, it's just amazing. But uh, you know, he's he's good at operating a drone. So so, but in the meantime, he's you know he's getting ready to go to college. He's in his junior year of high school. He's probably going to go to an Ivy League school or like a Duke or some you know get a really good education and uh, and he's really interested in the classics. He's speaking Latin and he loves history and everything. But what's funny is that he's sort of recognizing that his film background and knowledge of film and his dad and classics and history really lends itself well to making documentaries or just writing movies. So he used to say, I'm not interested in the film business. Now he's sort of leaning towards, well, I might follow my dad in film, but from another angle, you know? And um, kind of like what you did, right? Yeah. I mean, going to architecture school and then you end up in film and, and then coming your, back. Yeah, you know, it's a family right? business now. I mean, you can't run from it. There's so much wisdom there, right? Well, you know, listen, I, I making movies is, is an awesome thing to do and, and anybody can do it. I mean, Steven Soderbergh now has two movies made on iPhones. Uh, I mean, there's nothing to stop him from awesome. making movies, you know, and it's, and it's an amazing medium. I think it's the greatest form of form of art is making movies. Uh, and so there's nothing stopping you and, and anybody can do it. And also the world seems to be needing more content and more content, not less. And, and there's, and there's places to put your movies up just like YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, you know, and, and a movie doesn't have to be 90 minutes. A movie could be 10 minutes uh, as long as you're telling stories. So it's a wonderful thing to do for a living. And it, and for me, it's, it's given me really amazing opportunities. I mean, I've, I've filmed in Hawaii four times the last two years. I've filmed in Idaho and, and Miami and New York, um, you know, all over. Um, so, you know, it provides you with really great, and you know, it's like the other day I'm in a wetsuit in a lake 
outside of Los Angeles, inside a car under the water, filming. And I'm like, who who does this for a living? This is this is awesome, <laughs> you know. It is pretty sweet. And your listeners can do it. There's nothing holding them back, you know. No, that is true because a lot of times people write to us, especially from different countries, third world countries, that where you don't have access to great schools, and especially those that don't have a high budget. But we're with internet. I mean. Borders go away, right? You can totally. come up with something creative, upload it. Now, what advice would you give in closing? I know I'm holding you over here. In closing, what advice would you give to that person who doesn't have, let's say, a lot of money to go to college, maybe doesn't have the connections, but let's say they're 18 years old, graduating from high school, and they want to get into what you're doing. What advice would you give to your younger self or your your uh, your son? Well, um, for, well, there's a – I mean, I could go on forever about the subject, and I, I have no problem uh, – First of all, there's nothing holding you back equipment-wise because an iPhone, you can download an app called Filmic Pro on your iPhone. It's like $14.99, and it gives you full control of your iPhone. And uh, there's this one little button you can press on the bottom left corner of the app, and it actually gives you aperture settings with your thumb on the left side and um, uh, focus on the right side. It even has focus peaking, which allows you to actually see what's in focus. And you can rack focus. And uh, you can shoot in 235, you can shoot in 69, you can shoot 120 frames a second, and you can shoot 4K. So if you have a phone, which people do in all over the world and, and in third world countries, uh, that phone is is a really valuable camera. Like I said, Steven Soderbergh has shot Unsane and uh, an, an high-flying bird on the iPhone. The other thing I would is really think about which stories you want to tell. And remember, here's something important about stories is, is that people get caught up in stories. You know, the thing about stories is that I, I look at film as being commercial design, right? To me, the greatest form of art is commercial design. The way a Porsche is designed, the Volkswagen Rabbit design, an iPhone, how that's designed. You know, Picasso painted things and, and he liked it. And whether other people liked it, he didn't care, but he liked it. But when you make movies or stories... You're making it for an audience. And so it's a commercial project. So, you know, it's okay to make a story about a woman in jeopardy. You know, um, it's okay to make a story that's a romantic comedy. You don't have to. A lot of times independent filmmakers feel like they have to make these these stories about someone who gets, you know, murdered and, and then they get accused of this. And then it's it's a really down and depressing thing. I mean, the way to actually make a living making movies is actually make stories that people want to see. What happens is, you know, if you take, for instance, um, I'll, I'll give an example of a movie that went theatrical recently called Tully, starring Charlize Theron. You know, that movie is a depressing movie, and it's really beautifully made. It's beautifully acted. But if that movie didn't star Charlize Theron, nobody would have seen that movie, right? But on the other hand, my movies, you know, The Dog Who Saved Christmas or uh, uh, A Valentine's Date or um, Cradle Swapping or one of my, you know, one of my my Lifetime movies – they get seen like crazy and they don't, they don't have to star big stars. So for people who want to make movies, one is there's no limitation on camera equipment because an iPhone will do it for you. For sound, you can always fix the sound later as long as you have guide track that you can actually do your looping, your ADR to. It's fine. You don't even have to have a microphone. That's, you can put a Zoom recorder in somebody's pocket to record sound or even your iPhone will be a good enough sound as long as you're close enough away to just fix it later, right? But the other thing I would do is take time to study film. I mean, to me, the greatest film of all time is Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is one of the greatest films of all time because one is Orson Welles was 25 years old when he produced, wrote it, and directed it, and starred in it. And he made the greatest film of all time. But more importantly, somehow Orson Welles knew film language from everything from montage 
to camera angles to lenses. There's even a musical number in Citizen Kane. If you watch Citizen Kane, you'll see every version of film language used in that movie to its utmost degree. And if you study that movie, it's it's really shockingly um, a, a great a great film school. If you watch that movie. But of course, you know, watching as many movies as you can, and now you can from anywhere in the world with the internet, you can watch every movie in existence. But when you watch a movie, though, really, and I think making of movies is really important, really get a sense of, really think about screen direction, where the camera is, where they're placing the camera, what lenses they might be using, really try to pinpoint, are they using a wide angle or a, a long prime or something, you know? Why are they moving the camera? Realize that every scene needs a beginning, middle, and end, just like every movie needs a beginning, middle, and end. So study the craft of filmmaking, the language of film, which is going to help you make better films. That is really the difference between people out there who don't make a living making films and people who do make a living making films, is that people who make a living making films actually understand film language. And so when they make a film, it uh, resonates emotionally um, or it whether emotionally, whether it's action or whether it's uh, drama or whatever it might be, but because they know what lenses to choose, where to place the camera, what their limitations are, what they can pull off, whether they're going to go handheld, whether they're going to go on sticks, what, you know, um, you know, and, and by the way, another thing you do with your films is, is I highly recommend websites like pond five or shutterstock.com where you can buy stock footage. You can buy aerial shots to open up your movie. You know, if you shoot a movie in Hawaii, I don't have to shoot aerial shots of Hawaii. I can just buy aerial shots of Hawaii. You know, locations are critical. Don't shoot in your apartment. You know, uh, um, <laughs> go shoot in the woods. You could have a hundred million dollar movie that's shot in the same woods as a ten thousand dollar movie, or as a movie with no budget, and they still it's still the woods. You know, go shoot at the top of a of a of a mountain. You know, and and really make that movie look bigger. Don't shoot in your apartment. <laughs> Have you ever considered putting together like a course teaching yes. everything you know? Yeah, I, I have. I mean, it's it's hard because I'm so busy, but I really have thought about writing books or or um, I, I have spoken at at schools and things. I, I I'd like to do it more just because I I, I enjoy telling people about making movies. Um, you know, if I taught a course, I'd probably teach uh, one one of the main things I teach is what I call FCWTP. And uh, when you make a movie, you have to be FCWTP, which is flexible compromising with the program. So your listeners, if they're <laughs> going to go out and do something, right, they got to be flexible compromising with the program, you know? So, you know, let's say you're filming and it's pouring rain. Well, you either write the pouring rain into the scene or you, uh, you shoot under a tent and then you, you, uh, you hope that the rain doesn't get seen in the shot. You know, uh, if you have an actor who doesn't show up on time, you figure out how to shoot something else. Um, if you have budget limitations, you figure out how to make it look as big a budget as possible or as big a scene as possible within, within the parameters that you have, you know, being with the program. So, but, um, yeah, <laughs> I could go on and on. Uh, but. No, this is great. I'm, I'm listening. I'm taking it all in. Now, lastly, like what's, what's coming up for you? What movies are you working on? What's so uh, what's something we should be looking out for? Well, um, you know, here's the thing is that lately what happens is, is, and, and I think it's important for your for your listeners to know is because sometimes it's a mystery how people make a living and make movies and they wonder well how does this guy make so many movies? Well, I don't look for independent financing to make movies. I look for companies, distribution companies who make who need content to sell, right? So I get hired by distribution companies who need content and I make them the content. Now, a lot of distribution companies, the content that they sell is movies that play on 
the Lifetime channel, which is a female-centric sort of uh, dramatic channel, or the Hallmark channel, which is romantic comedies and Christmas movies and and happy right. kind of stuff. And you know, f- for a while, I was I was hired to make true crime movies based on serial killers, and then I was hired to make dog Christmas movies. And lately, I've been hired to make a lot of movies that air on the Lifetime channel. I did make a western last year that I'm very excited about. That's uh, that's that we're we're working on. Uh, that stars uh, uh, the two main stars. Uh, three main stars are actors named Neil Bledsoe, Rob Mays, and Anna Lynn McCord. And it also stars uh, Val Kilmer, Jake Busey, James Russo, Michael Bowen, uh, Michael Welch from the Twilight movies. I mean, it's a it's a really great cast. I'm really excited about that film, and it's a different genre that I usually work in. So I have, uh, right now I have multiple movies in post. Uh, I have a movie called Wrongfully Accused that'll show up on the Lifetime channel soon. And uh, the movie I I literally just finished is called The New Girl, which is going to play on the Lifetime channel. And then next week I start another movie that's another thriller. After that, I think I'm doing a movie about puppies and Christmas that somebody (laughs) gave, you know, now, uh, you know, about three quarters of the time I write the scripts, but sometimes the company will say, look, I need a movie. We need a movie delivered in six months. Here's a script. Can you make it happen? I, yeah, give me the script. I'll make a, I'll make you a movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to turn down a job. So I'll probably be writing, starting writing another Western shortly. And uh, so just busy fabricating movies and, uh, and enjoying the process. That is awesome. You wear many hats. You wear many hats. Now, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, they can find me on Instagram on Mike, Mike Pfeiffer, M-I-K-E-F-E-I-F-E-R, or um, Facebook, Michael Pfeiffer. You know, it's tough because I, I get bombarded with uh, with emails and things. And I, I feel terrible because I, I just, you know, it's very hard to answer emails and things. I think, uh, um, and, and and you get bombarded with the weirdest, weirdest things, to tell you the truth. But my, my email is is on uh, IMD, IMDb. So if somebody, uh, somebody can email me there. But I, the, the thing is that um, uh, it's best to listen to things like podcasts and things that I do because it's, it's very, very difficult. It's very time consuming. I mean, every moment in, of the day that I'm writing an email, I'm like, I need to be writing a script, you know, because I'm, I'm so busy making movies, you know. But I do suggest for people who, who, you know, to get out there on a set or go make their own movie and just go do it. Just do it. I love it. That's yeah. awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks. It was, it was a pleasure and uh, I'd be glad to do it again. And uh, and to all your listeners too, I really just, just uh, really take, I think since a lot of your listeners are visual people too, really understand that that filmmaking is really a visual process at first. So don't get disheartened by the acting side of things. Don't worry. Your actors know what to do. It's really, you need to direct your crew and really understand the film language and, and because a lot of your listeners are, are graphics people and animation people and visual people, they actually have a leg up on most directors out there. In fact, 90% of directors in Hollywood don't even understand the stuff that we understand. And it's kind of shocking. Really? Yeah, yeah. They're sort of wrapped up in sort of the philosophical world of making movies and acting <laughs> and all that. And they're actually are not the ones who should be actually behind the camera. Being behind the camera is a really – it's really like if you have a project – that's an animation project or a graphics project. It's a design process problem, you know, and how you go about doing it. And, uh, and those are the people who should be directing movies. So I think a lot of your listeners are, are, are doing the right thing to, to get there. Well, that's encouraging to hear. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Michael. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. I appreciate it. Good talking to you. All right. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael Pfeiffer. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Enjoyed chatting with you. And as always, all the links and resources mentioned in this episode are also available on our website at euchromedia.com slash 88. And while you're there, check out our first ever Blender course and our 
time-saving After Effects courses and products. Also, don't forget to join our online mentoring group on Facebook. Simply go to ukremedia.com community. We have well over 3,000 people in this group. It is a great online resource for those of you trying to grow, and it's absolutely free. Thank you so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. I appreciate you, and I look forward to serving you in the next episode of the Ukremedia podcast. Bye-bye.